The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. I want to welcome everyone this evening. Um, I am honored to be standing up here handling the Word of God before you tonight. Um, I would like to begin by uh, just thanking Pastor Rick um, and Pastor Dan and, and the Dressler family and the Christians family um, for not only letting me up, get up here tonight, but also for the hard work that they put in each and every day to lead this church. Um, I think the reality is that we only see a fraction of what they do. Um, and I think that, that um, they are certainly a blessing to this church. And I, th- I think that we should pray uh, that the Lord continues to give them strength as they serve faithfully. Uh, so th- thank you, Pastor Dan. Um, We'll be reading tonight from the book of James. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, and I I hope you do, uh, please turn to James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Our our text tonight, uh, as we will see, is absolutely packed, so I'm excited to to get into it tonight. uh, Chapter 4, starting at verse 1, and it reads, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members. Ye lust and do not have. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye not ask. Ye ask and not receive, because you ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, but he giveth more grace? Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, this evening. I thank you for the the faithful uh, members of this church uh, that that show up uh, Sunday morning, Sunday evening faithfully, Lord. Uh, I thank you for any guests that are here tonight. Uh, Lord, I pray that we could open your word and see the truth that is within it. Lord, I pray that as I speak tonight, I realize that, that by myself, I have nothing good to say, but that through your spirit, your word can be proclaimed and your truth can be learned. I pray that we glorify you above all else tonight, Lord. In your holy, precious name we pray. Amen. I would like to begin this evening by taking a look at the context of our passage so that we may properly understand the message that James is proclaiming to us. There is no great mystery as to the author of the book of James. The author is James, the brother of Jesus. The book is being written to the 12 tribes of dispersion, 
a group of home churches, most likely outside of Palestine. From the social, the social situation present within these circles, we can derive that these churches have been facing persecution and poverty for some time. And they have even split into some fighting factions. Many of the members of these churches have adopted worldly lifestyles and they have become double-minded, wavering between God and the world. In fact, the behavior of many of these church members would give reason to question their salvation, which we will examine throughout our passage this evening. The book of James is immensely practical. The primary theme of the book is living out one's faith, to be a doer and not just a hearer of the word, which is a good thing. So without further ado, let us unpack this jam-packed text tonight. Let us first take a look at verse 1. Verse 1 reads, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Verse 1 of our text tonight immediately reveals that the recipients of James' letter are in conflict. James identifies the source of these wars and fights as unsatisfied, self-centered desire. The second half of this verse states that the lusts that are, uh, sorry, the lust that war in your members. This is actually very strong language when discussing internal conflict that the church members are experiencing. The Greek word for desire that is translated here relates to the English word hedonism. Hedonism is a philosophy which is a concept of living to satisfy one's selfish desires, whatever you can do to satisfy your selfish needs. The use of this translation suggests that these churches are a mess. The members of these churches are seeking to please themselves and not living for the Lord. This will always result in conflict of self, as well as conflict between church members, as we are about to see. Verse 2 states, Ye lust and not have. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because you ask not. Again, we read James using very, very strong language to describe the conflicts that were taking place among these church members. The plural use of both fight and war suggests that this was not an isolated problem within these churches, but a chronic ongoing issue. Some scholars have actually gone so far to suggest that there were actual literal war going on between these groups and between individuals. Wars in which actual murders were taking place. However, from the evidence that we have and the context that this passage finds itself in, it seems more plausible to suggest that James is referring to murderous hatred, extremely destructive behavior, and behavior that was so offensive to behavior that was as offensive to God as committing actual murder. This claim is reinforced when we look to Jesus's words in the book of Matthew. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is found all throughout the book of James, Jesus links hatred and contempt with murder. We read in Matthew chapter 5 verse 21 and 22. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger 
of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And who shall and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. James suggests to his readers that the root of fights and wars among church members is internal conflict which finds its origin in unsatisfied selfish desires. Conflict with church members are often a result of conflict with self. A great analogy of this is a husband and a wife. When a husband is living to serve his own flesh and his own selfish desires, there will most definitely be conflict in the home. He is violating God's intention for marriage. However, if a husband is constantly pouring himself out for his wife, as God intends, there will be joy and harmony within the home. Let's move to verse 3. Let's preface that by saying, at the end of verse 2, James highlights that the reason many are lacking what they need in their poverty-stricken state is that they're not asking God for what they need. We serve a gracious God willing to give us what we need when we need it. But it's a foolish pursuit to covet and try and obtain things on our own power. We are to ask God for what we seek. I would even go so far to suggest that prayerlessness results in a failure to receive many of the blessings that God has in store for us. What's more is bringing prayer requests to God can often have a purifying effect on our own desires. Especially when we understand that verse 2 must be qualified by by verse 3. Verse 3 states, You ask and receive not, because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. Verse 3 proposes a trap that so many fall into. These church members are asking God for things that they want, so that they can spend it on their own selfish desires. If we bring our prayer requests before God with the goal being anything other than His glory and the advancement of His kingdom, then we are seeking our own interests. We're seeking our own pleasures. And quite simply, that is wrong. How can we expect God to grant these requests? Let's move to verse 4. Verse 4 states, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. In verse 4, James gives these people a couple serious charges. In the first half of the verse, he calls his audience adulterous people. Although most of us would think of infidelity of either a husband or a wife, James uses this term metaphorically in a way that his Jewish audience would clearly understand. Referring to men and women, but not talking about sexual infidelity. James here is speaking of God's unfaithful people. It is a comparison of turning away from God to that of spiritual adultery. This directly refers back to the Old Testament, specifically to the book of Jeremiah, when apostate Israel was far from God. The language that is used in Jeremiah, which is linked to our passage tonight, illustrates the severity of James' charge. 
The seriousness of the second half of this verse can also not be overestimated. A friend of the world is an enemy of God. That is a terrifying thought. This seriousness is grounded by James' call for both the Jewish people in the tribes of dispersion, as well as people in 21st century Chatham, Ontario, to examine their relationship with God and to examine their salvation. Again, we look back to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus lays it out here for us perfectly when he states in Matthew 6, verse 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and man. We must not live as if to serve two masters. It cannot be done. If you are saved by the blood of Jesus, then act like it. You are called to serve a master far greater, far more loving and gracious and powerful than any of us could ever imagine. I I love the quote by C.S. Lewis that reads as follows. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think that that insight really sums up what we see in our society today. We are so easily pleased. We are so distracted, and yet infinite joy and the glory of having a relationship with Jesus Christ is offered to us. You cannot have both. Christian, we must realize that the joy offered to us by our Father in heaven are far greater than any promise of temporary pleasure from any sin that this world can offer. What's more is that when we do choose that temporary pleasure, instead of the joy offered to us through God, We are undermining what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. We are looking God in the face and not believing that his love is far greater than anything that this world can offer. We must strive not to be guilty of this. In verse 5, James makes another reference to the Old Testament when he says, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? This verse is a difficult one to understand as it has been interpreted in different ways from various biblical scholars. Through study of this passage and the greater context the book of James is written in, I take it to be addressed, I take it to be an address by James to unbelievers revealing to them that they themselves are proof of the scriptures in that the spirit that dwells inside each and every human being lusteth to envy. The natural bent of human beings is rebellion. We are born like that. I enjoy sharing with my students that if they do not believe this truth, that they should just come over to my house and watch my two-year-old son, Hudson. From birth, humans are sinful. We've noticed uh, lately that that Hudson seems to be developing uh, quite a temper. I'm convinced that he gets it from his mother, although I've been uh, told sternly otherwise. Um, But we've noticed even in the last couple weeks that 
uh, if he'll run into something or something will, will hurt him, uh, it, it, let's say he runs into the coffee table, he will not only uh, be upset, he will then proceed to go back to the coffee table and beat the spot that hit him as hard as he can. We are born sinful human beings. That's the truth. Let's get back to it. In verse 6, we read, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but give grace to the humble. What great news for followers of Jesus Christ. God makes great demands of his people, yes, but he gives them grace to overcome and to fulfill these demands. What greater picture do we have of this than God sending his son to cleanse us of our iniquities so that we may stand before the Father as righteous men and women? How can it get any better than that? To be sure, if it were up to you and if it were up to I, we would be damned to an eternity in hell. Praise the Lord that Romans chapter 5 verse 6 is truth when it states, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ's sacrifice is certainly the most glorious picture that we can comprehend on this side of heaven. It is the single reason that the believer has a promise of eternity with our Father in heaven. But for all the joy and glory we should experience in reading Romans 5, 6, verse 6 of our passage in James tonight reveals a disastrous reality for the unbeliever. In this verse, James is directly quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, which states, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he give grace unto the lowly. The scorners or the proud are those who have given themselves over to the lusts of the flesh, living a prideful existence full of conflict and in direct rebellion to God. The word resisteth or opposed as read in other Bible translations is translated from the Greek word antisiomai, which is a military term meaning a full army prepared and ready for battle. When we take this definition and apply it in the context to our situation in verse 6, we are left with one of the most terrifying scenarios that a human being could ever experience. When we think of the character of God and the attributes of our God, that he is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, he's inscrutable, which means beyond understanding, and we realize that if we choose to love the world and in doing so become an enemy of him, that we will be completely and utterly destroyed under his wrath his power, and his rule. Our God's rule of this world is he created is absolute and it is final. The battle has already been won. I plead with you that if you do not know Christ tonight, if you have not submitted yourself before him and dedicated your life to serving him, do so before that fateful day comes upon us and it is too late. What a powerful contrast the joy and the graciousness and the love of our Heavenly Father for the believer and the gloom and inevitable destruction of those who choose to oppose Him. All throughout the epistle of James, we see a call to live out our faith. James is immensely concerned on Christians living their faith. In James 2, we read the often misunderstood passage on faith and works. 
Here we are instructed that not, sorry, here we are instructed not that we achieve salvation by our works, but that we can demonstrate the authenticity and the sincerity of our faith through our works. Through faith alone, we are justified and become adopted sons and daughters of our heavenly father. But our works should demonstrate that this indeed has changed everything about the way we live. James is consistently concerned about professed believers, those who identify as children of God, testing their faith to be sure it's genuine. We can understand this basic objective through the final verses of James of the book of James. And they read, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way from the error of his way, shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. As James calls out his brothers and sisters to examine their legitimacy, the legitimacy of their citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, in verses 7 to 10, he then proceeds to lay out one of the clearest calls to salvation in all of Scripture. Through the final four verses of our text tonight, we'll examine the Ten Commands that James gives to unbelievers. These ten commands are not in soteriological order, meaning they are not a sequence or a set of steps that one follows in order to achieve salvation. However, they are elements of what God expects in response of a sinner who has answered the Lord's call to salvation. Although these, these words have been written to unbelievers, as believers, we certainly can look to these words and be encouraged, and also at the same time be challenged to examine, are we living our faith? Let's read these last four verses tonight. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness humble yourselves in sight of the lord and he shall lift you up in verse 7 the first of our 10 commands we see that we are to submit there are many of some forms of submission used throughout scripture and all are certainly important here in verse 7 the basic truth as it relates to salvation is proclaimed that you cannot receive salvation without submitting to god The act of submitting is an essential characteristic of a child of God. A believer in Christ should be eager to submit to the will and the lordship of their heavenly father. The second command we see is to resist. Likewise, in verse 7, we see that to submit to the Lord is to resist the devil. In this verse, James calls unbelievers to resist the devil and follow Christ. I would suggest that that this command by James applies just as much to a believer as it does to an unbeliever. If you are anything like me, your first question in response to this part of the verse is how exactly does one do that? To be sure, Satan is a powerful adversary. We see in 1 Peter chapter 5, the, the devil is described as a roaring lion seeking prey to devour. Thankfully, the Lord does not leave us to our own means here or we would have no success. But he provides and protects as we stand up 
and resist the devil. By living in the Spirit and refusing to fall into the trap of sin, we actively resist Satan and please our Heavenly Father. Our third call tonight is is fellowship. In verse 8, it states, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. What a beautiful promise. The God of the universe is willing to draw near to us and be in fellowship with us, communion with us, if we are only willing to commit to Him. As a follower of Christ, in light of this fact and in everything that He has done for us, we should be compelled to live a life of obedience to Him as we enjoy His fellowship. Likewise, an unbeliever must realize that to receive salvation, they must desire fellowship. They must desire to get to know God. Our fourth and fifth commands that we see from James tonight are to cleanse and purify. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're familiar with the fact that this is a a direct comparison or it's brought directly from the Old Testament. Verse 8 states, Cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. The imagery of this comes back or takes us back to the customs of Jewish priests in the Old Testament. Before they would come in before the Lord, they would be required to clean their hands. Today we cleanse our hands by withdrawing from all evil actions and compromises with sin. To purify our hearts means to turn away from sin, to not indulge in it any longer, especially the sin that comes from within us and manifests itself in all other forms of outward sin. Unbelievers are called to turn from their ways and pursue the Lord. As a believer too, we must realize that we have turned away from our sin. So we have absolutely no reason to be there anymore. And how do we live that out? Well, we live that out in the Spirit. Verse 9 of our text, we find our sixth command. Verse 9 states, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. The sixth command from James is to be miserable. In my initial reading of this passage, I must admit that I was somewhat confused and certainly more than intrigued by these calls from from James. Not until you realize the context of who James is writing to does it become clear. Again, James is writing to those who have not come to a saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. Being miserable in this context is calling unbelievers to be broken and feel wretched because of the circumstance that they find themselves in. They are separated from God, doomed to an eternity in hell. The seventh command is to mourn. To mourn over the sin that is plaguing them. The call to mourn as to the weeping over the call to mourn is a call to uh, mourn as to weeping over the death of a family member. The lost cannot come to salvation unless they realize to the extent of which their sin has condemned them. The eighth command is to weep. To weep means that unbelievers are demonstrating godly sorrow, realizing that they have done against realizing what they have done against a perfect righteous God. This stage leads to repentance and then from repentance to salvation. The ninth command is a call to seriousness, that laughter would be turned to mourning 
and joy turn to heaviness or to gloom. Unbelievers are to realize that the trivial, self-centered desires of the flesh are not to be taken lightly and that they must mourn over them. Jeremiah realized this tone when he stated in Lamentations chapter 5, verse 15 to 16, the joy of our heart is ceased. Our dance is turned into mourning. The crown is fallen from our head. Woe unto us that we have sinned. Jeremiah realizes the seriousness of sin. The tenth and final command is given to us by James in our passage today in his call to humility. Humility must be the starting point of salvation. Unbelievers must recognize their pride and the fact that they are guilty before they can proceed down the glorious path to salvation. Within this passage, James gives the lost a wonderfully clear call as to what is necessary to come into union with our Heavenly Father. Although these Ten Commands are penned for unbelievers, they're certainly not empty words for the follower of Christ. True to the theme of the book, James, to the book of James, believers should be constantly examining their lives to ensure that their faith is being lived out through their works. I implore you in the coming days to open the book of James and to examine these Ten Commands. How are you living these out? Are you submitting to your Lord and Savior? Are you resisting the snares of the devil? Are you in constant fellowship with the Lord? And to that point, are you basking in the glory of having a heavenly father that is willing to draw near to you? Are you cleansing your hands and purifying your hearts before the Lord? And are you understanding the seriousness and wickedness of your sin? Finally, are you humbling yourself before God? These are all good questions, brothers and sisters. And may we be a people who constantly examine how we are living out our lives in light of what Christ has done for us. As I stated in the beginning of, at the beginning of this evening, this passage from James 4 is absolutely packed. Let us shift gears and take inspiration from the practicality of the book as we see how this, pa- this passage written so long ago is perfectly relevant in today's 21st century. I would like to leave you with three quick points tonight of how we can apply this to our lives. Number one is to submit to God. Both believer and unbeliever, we must submit to the one who we owe everything. How do you relate to God? Although this is not something we often think of, it is an extremely important question. Is God someone who you go to from time to time when you need something? Is he your buddy? Is he someone you casually decide to be part of your life from time to time? Or is he the Lord of your life who deserves nothing less than your complete commitment? I hope for your sake that he is the latter. Otherwise, I I would suggest taking some time to truly examine the authenticity of your faith. We must be willing to submit to the will he has for us and to his word. We must be willing to admit that we are lost and on our own. And we need his spirit to guide us through this life. 
If you have come to that realization and you are a follower of Christ, you are no longer lost or alone. Number two is come to a realization that the story is not about you. The Bible is God's gift to us. It's a living word. It is truth that we can stake our lives on. What it is also is a story. God's unfolding story that from Genesis to Revelation, God reveals to us the most beautiful story ever told. In every way, this story points towards God sending his son Jesus to be born of a virgin, to humble himself by becoming a baby, to living a perfect life as fully God and fully man, and to voluntarily die on a cross for you and for me. Isn't that beautiful? Is it not the greatest story ever told? It is mind-blowing. But can I share with you a secret? You are not the main character in that story. We are so narcissistic that I fear many of us go about our daily lives believing the lies that our culture markets to us, which is that we are the star of our own show and that God exists to support us as we see fit. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to realize that many of us have been wired to think this way through the culture that we live. It is wrong. We must submit and fall into the role that God has given us in his unfolding story. Those who should do everything they can to glorify him. Realize that you were created to bring him glory, period. Draw near to him is our third point of application. Charles Spurgeon says it well when he urges us to dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard. If we are able to do this, then the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Are you in the habit of walking with the Lord daily? What does your prayer life look like? Are you in his word? Brother and sister, if you devote your life to prayer, to reading his word and serving him, you will grow more in love with Jesus Christ every day. I'm not sure who said it, but I've always remembered well the saying, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. If we keep our thoughts on things above and we strive to serve him with everything that we are and with everything that we have, we will be able to resist the ever-present temptation that sin presents to us. Christian, think of our text tonight. If you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. How could it get any better than that? Jesus Christ died for you and for me. I urge you to live your lives in the light of that truth. Glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ every day. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Let's pray.